and welcome to the Westside Church's special Monday Morning Coffee Podcast. On this podcast, our preacher, Mark Roberts, will help you get your week started right with a look back at yesterday's sermon so that we can think through it further and better work the applications into our daily lives. Mark will then look forward into this week's Bible reading so that we can know what to expect and watch for. And he may have some extra bonus thoughts from time to time. So grab a cup of coffee as we start the week together on Monday Morning Coffee with Mark. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the Monday Morning Coffee podcast for August the 16th. I'm Mark, and I am glad to welcome you to the podcast this morning. This is a podcast all about starting the week with a look back at yesterday's sermon, plus a look forward to our Bible reading for the week. We're trying to carry the momentum of Sunday into Monday. And I am, of course, doing this while drinking coffee, and usually I say something about a great cup of coffee, and I need to be honest, I am not drinking a great cup of coffee. I bought into some marketing hype. There's a company that has some coffee kind of concentrate, kind of a syrup, and it promises instant coffee. Just add some hot water, and it's going to be amazing, and it isn't. It's not really a very good cup of coffee. But I am making up for that by drinking it out of one of my favorite coffee mugs. This is the Fellows Insulated Mug, and it has a ceramic inside, and it's just really, really a nice mug. I love drinking out of it, but even a great mug can't make mediocre coffee into great coffee. All of that said, let's talk a little bit about the sermon yesterday. Yesterday was back to school Sunday at Westside, and I preached a lesson for our students as they embark on a new school year about evading and avoiding the traps and temptations that come with the school year. And I made four major points out of 1 Corinthians 10. Maybe I should say Paul makes four major points there as he thinks about the failure of the Israelites and why they failed and what they did that was so wrong, what led them down that path. And the points that I made from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, number one, don't see how far you can go without falling into sin. Stop all the griping and complaining. Don't make excuses when you fall. And then realize you get what you want. That's just true in spiritual things. What our heart is set on is what we will eventually reach to. If we want to do wrong, we're going to do wrong. And if we want to do right, God will help us and we will do what's right. So I'm going to add a couple of things to that. I think this is an important time for parents and for students Lots on the plate, of course. We've got this Delta variant going on. There's a change in our schedule. Maybe the lazy days of summer are gone. Parents have to change their schedule, school activities, rehearsals, practices, homework, projects. Lots is happening. This is a time to focus on our walk with God and how we can make that solid and strong, not fall into temptations and traps. And the Two things that I would want to add to that lesson would be, first, we need to pay attention to the Old Testament. That's kind of a hard thing to say in a year where we're so dedicated to the Gospels. We're reading in the Gospels this year. We're all about Jesus. But I just want to say we need to pay attention to the Old Testament. And probably our reading plan next year will reflect that as we go with an Old Testament reading plan, I would guess, next year. That said, as we're reading in the Old Testament, we want to make certain that we're not just wagging our heads and saying, look at those Israelites. I can't believe those bunch of dumb bunnies got involved in the stuff that they did. 
Paul helps us here in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says these things took place as examples for us. And then again, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example. We are supposed to read the Old Testament, look at the Old Testament, and then apply the Old Testament. That is the value of the Old Testament. So that would be the first thing that I would want to add to yesterday's sermon. The other point that I would really, really like to add to the sermon, you just can't say everything, we'd be there for days, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 when he talks about how they desired evil, verse 6, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. I didn't try to develop Paul's ideas here about idolatry because in some ways that's a very abstract idea for us today. We don't have literal statues that people are falling down in front of. And I think making that work at a second grade level is an enormous challenge out of the pulpit. We probably would still be in the church building if I was trying to make all that fly for young students especially. But I expect mostly parents are going to be listening to this podcast, and so I just want to say a word or two about Paul's emphasis on idolatry and that we do need to make that a reality. These warnings about idolatry need to be a reality in the lives of our kids. Even if we don't ever use the word idol, we want to watch for idolatry. That is the dominant sin in Israelite history. They constantly get involved in that, and I think it's a mistake for us to say because we have no idol today, no official statues, that can't happen. In the New Testament, idolatry is equated to covetousness. Paul does that in Colossians, the third chapter. Basically, remember, idolatry is just putting something at the center of our life instead of God. And that is the main emphasis of Paul's text in 1 Corinthians 10. In fact, in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul's not writing that because as soon as the statues disappear off the landscape, nobody will ever need to worry about idolatry again. People still put something at the center of their life instead of God. And that can be financial success. That can be popularity. That can be chasing sexual fulfillment with multiple partners. We see all kinds of things that are driving people's lives today besides God. And as parents, we need to watch that in our children's lives, academic success, success on the sports field, having lots of friends, getting lots of clicks on Instagram or TikTok, aren't at the center of our children's hearts we need to guard against idolatry. And we particularly need to guard our own hearts. Sometimes where children learn to worship idols is from mom and dad. They just watch them worshiping idols. Idols are replacing God with something else. Money, popularity, even family. We could make family into an idol, couldn't we? If that's the center of our existence, what we make decisions based on and around, what drives everything that we're doing. And I should say that part of replacing God with an idol is that idols usually let us do what we want to do. Baal never said, thou shalt not, and didn't tell worshipers they'd better straighten up and fly right. 
Idolatry involves worship done my way, doing what I want and enjoy. That's why Paul makes the observation about the people sitting down, verse 7, to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. That was part of the idolatry in Old Testament times. And today when people choose to serve an idol, it's just amazing how permissive their theology gets, allowing them to do whatever it is that they want. So it's appropriate when we start talking about learning from Israel that we talk a little bit about the reality of idolatry that still goes on today. We want to guard our children's hearts, and we want to guard our own hearts against replacing God with something else. If I have something at the center of my life instead of God, whatever that is, that is an idol, and it needs to go. Well, let's think a little bit then about our reading in the book of John this week. Let's talk about daily Bible reading. Bible reading this week, we continue in John the 16th chapter, and then on Tuesday, we're going to begin John 17. That's a big jump. We want to get set for that in the right kind of way. That is easily one of the most awesome chapters in all of the Bible. So, big reading in John 17 on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then the events of the crucifixion begin in John 18 on Friday. Let's talk about it one day at a time. Monday's reading, John 16, 25 to 33, coming right out of what we read on Friday. Jesus continues to reassure the disciples' hearts and has some important things to say about his relationship with God and what it means for God to love us. I'm looking there at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. Sometimes people almost have the view that Jesus comes to kind of correct or water down that bad Old Testament God the Father, all wrathful and vengeful. God's got to somehow get squared away a little bit on some of that and be a little nicer. So Jesus came down here and fixed all that. That, of course, is completely false. We don't want to think of God in that sort of way. That wars against the goodness of God. We've talked about that so much recently. Verse 27 again, the Father himself loves you. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten. God loves us. God has always loved his creation. That's a key idea to hold on to here. And then also in Monday's reading, verse 33, Jesus is going to say, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The term for overcome there is a term for victory, for winning. It is actually related to the word Nike. And of course, in Jesus's day, that wasn't a kind of tennis shoe. That was the winged goddess of victory. And Jesus says, I have won. Hold on to 1633 as we journey forward into the cross because there's going to be some terribly hard times for Jesus. But he knows he has overcome. He will win. He has the victory. So we come to Tuesday's reading, which is only five verses, John 17, 1 to 5. That doesn't seem like a lot, but there's plenty in this reading to keep us busy as we think about and try to understand and try to unpack what Jesus is doing here. This prayer has been called many things. Um, my subtitles in my Bible have the high priestly prayer. 
Some people call it the Lord's own prayer because it's not really a model of how to pray. This is Jesus actually praying. Please notice there's no confession of sin here. And the ideas in this prayer are not freestanding. They connect to everything that's been in front of it. In some ways, they summarize John's gospel, principal themes that we have been seeing again and again is the idea of the obedience to the Father by Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, that he will sacrifice himself leading to glory, the unity of the Father and the Son. So much of that is part of this prayer, and it does outline very, very easily. The first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. Verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for the church. And by the way, you and I are part of that prayer. So as we're reading on Tuesday and we're reading about being glorified, Father, the hours come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Remember, glory means here to praise and to honor, to set in the right place. And there's a note here of Jesus needing to be obedient and persevere to the end. He is very confident. We just talked about that in 1633. I have overcome. But there is work still to do. And Jesus knows about that work and that he must do that work. I glorified you, verse 4, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now glorify me, verse 5, in your own presence. So the idea here is that Jesus must continue all the way through the cross. And in many ways, the John 17 prayer replaces the praying of the Garden of Gethsemane in John's gospel. John doesn't say anything about that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have covered that adequately. John does not pay attention to the garden. He instead talks about and records for us this amazing prayer where Jesus is preparing himself for what is to come in prayer. So on Wednesday, we'll just keep reading this prayer, verses 6 to 19. This is where Jesus prays for the apostles. There's tremendous emphasis on obedience. Verse 6, they need to continue to obey just as Jesus is obedient. And then about verse 11, the prayer really begins to turn toward the idea of protection because they will have to face the world without Jesus. And the idea of protection is just fundamental. That runs all the way through about verse 18. Jesus prays for them to be protected so they will remain pure and holy. Verse 15 is a big part of that. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not leaving. Jesus actually is leaving, but they are not. So they're going to have to continue to do their job in a world that is going to be hostile towards them. On Thursday, then, we'll read the rest of the prayer, John 17, 20 to 26. And that is the part of the prayer that includes you and me. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is you and me. And the emphasis, again, is being united in purpose, in love, in submission to the Word of God. Verse 21, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may all be one in us. And you may have questions about what Jesus means in verse 22 when he says, The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Glory refers to praise and honor, as I said a moment ago, and here it references the manifestation of God's character or person. We have the opportunity to tell others about Jesus, to tell what God has done, and for us to know God. And when we do that, 
That is great glory for you and me. We sing that song, Christ lives in me. What glory that is. In fact, that's the only kind of glory, the only kind of praise and honor that will last into eternity. Jesus really summarizes here at the end of John 17 his entire mission. We might say, problem, the world does not know God. Solution, Jesus knows God and can therefore reveal God. Implementation, Jesus has gathered disciples who will come to know God and reveal God or help others come to know God as well. Finally then, things shift in John chapter 18. John 18, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's the beginning of our reading for Friday, and the pace just is fast and furious in John's gospel. All kinds of things happen as Jesus moves towards the cross, and as we would expect, John highlights what the other Gospels do not. The Romans here play a much greater role than they do in the synoptics, and as I mentioned a moment ago, there is no prayer in Gethsemane, there's no kiss by Judas, there is lots of emphasis on the control of Jesus, that Jesus is running everything. Nothing is happening at random. Jesus knows everything that will happen before it happens. We will see some stuff that you don't see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, like Jesus and Pilate's conversation and John and Jesus' mother at the cross. I do think a big key here is that they go to the garden, 18.1, and if you jump all the way to the end of the crucifixion account in John's gospel, in John 19.41, they end in the garden there. So garden brackets these ideas. We're starting in the garden, we end in a garden. It's a different garden where the tomb is, but John is using garden here as bookends, if you will, to hold this material together. And as we're working along here, we're going to see this business with the high priest and the things that go with the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas. And we're going to start with Annas and Caiaphas, and there'll be all kind of discussion about that. And you may wonder, why are there two high priests? And the answer is that Annas held office from AD 6 to AD 15, and he was deposed by the predecessor to Pilate, a governor named Valerius Gratus. And a lot of Jews really resented him doing that, and so they still recognized him as the power behind the high priesthood. So the Romans had their high priest, but everybody was really looking to Annas as the high priest, and you actually see some of that in John's gospel. There's some deference there to Annas, and there's a sense of we can't really get this done with checking without checking with the real high priest first. So that's why we're going to end up with these double high priests beginning in verse 12, 13, and 14 of our reading. John covers a little bit of that. Now, that's a difficult place for us to end our Bible reading, but of course, it has to be divided up into manageable chunks. But when you get to John 18, 14, it's just pretty difficult to stop reading. But next week, we'll push forward and we'll read further about the death of our Savior and how significant and important that is as we hear Jesus even on the cross. But that's for next week's reading. For now, thank you for listening. If you love the Monday Morning Coffee podcast, I'd just love for you to subscribe or follow, rate, and then give a review on iTunes or whatever app you're listening on. Maybe the best thing you could do is share this with a friend. Ask someone else to listen. That would be a great help to us as well. But until next time, may your coffee be delightful. Better than the coffee I'm drinking today. May your Monday be short, and may the Lord be with you today 
all day. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Westside Church of Christ podcast, Monday Morning Coffee with Mark. For more information about Westside, you can connect with us through our website, justchristians.com, and our Facebook page. Our music is from Upbeat.io. That's Upbeat with two P's, U-P-P-B-E-A-T, where creators can get free music. Please share our podcast with others, and we look forward to seeing you again, with a cup of coffee, of course, on next Monday. Oh,